0: find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
1: What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange... The bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So
3: we had a fun Mother's Day. We went to an auction. Yes. It was a really cool auction and uh, Kat did all the bidding and wound up picking up a couple of pretty cool things.
1: Yes, I had a really nice time. Thank you.
3: Now, the art print that you bought for like 30 bucks? Uh Uh-huh. And you did some research online. Yeah. And what do you think it's worth?
1: Uh, Around a thousand. Yeah.
3: For 30 bucks.
1: Um, And the thing is, it's because, it, you know, you don't know exactly what you're getting and it's hard to get a really good look at things. And I think this kind of just looked like maybe a piece of hotel art mm-hmm. and people didn't think that it had a lot of value. Yeah. But I figured, you know, if we could get it for that cheap, why not? You know, it's not hideous or anything. So it was a win for me either way. But,
3: well, the way I looked at it is the frame was worth 30 bucks, probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> but the item that that really caught my attention, an old wooden box came up for auction and you picked that up really cheap too. And inside of it was a 1926 microscope with all of the lenses and everything in it. It's beautiful. It's perfect for our oddities collection. And you picked it up very cheaply.
1: Yeah, I swooped in You swooped is in what happened. A
3: little sniper action. Yeah. And uh, based on your research online, that's worth about how much? 1700 <laughs> So it was a good Mother's Day.
1: I had the best time. It was the best date I possibly could have imagined. And you were so nice and you just let me kind of do the things. Uh-huh. And at the end of it, I was like hi. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, that lasted for a couple of days. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's true. And when I walked out of the bedroom and I saw the prince like leaning up against the wall, I was like, <laughs> hi all over again.
3: Well, you come from a, a line of auction goers. Your dad was a big auction uh, guy. My dad was
1: a big auction guy. I got to go with him, you know, when I was a kid. And so I kind of learned his methodology and it it just kind of stuck with me. And it's something I've always loved and it makes me feel very nostalgic. And it's also like a really fun combination of, uh, you know, I love to win. Yeah, well, I love yeah. winning. That's true. But I'm also very frugal. <laughs> so, and I love the idea that there might be like a hidden treasure mm. that you don't know what you're going to find. So that it's why auctions are kind of the thing for me.
3: Your dad found a hidden treasure in an auction. That's probably what lit the fuse for you.
1: Probably. Yeah, I was, I think, around uh, 12 or 13 and my dad went to an auction and it was one of those um, where they had the big items, the big ticket items, and then they had lots of boxes. Mm. And so he had gone through some of the lots and he found one or two that he was interested in. He ended up buying both of them. And when he got it home and went through the boxes there was a filing cabinet in one of them uh, which eventually he got open it wasn't like you know he had some real urgency to so it was a while after he had purchased it he uh, ended up getting it open and inside that filing cabinet was the deed to his mother's house
3: how weird is that
1: it's the most bizarre thing
3: i love stories like that amazing well i've got an amazing story for you
1: i love amazing stories
3: there's an area in northern mexico And the area borders the Mexican states of Durango and Chihuahua.
1: The United States of Mexico.
3: And it's in an area known as Trino Vertex. It's also known as La Zona del Silencio. The Silent Zone. The Zone of Silence. It's been compared to the Bermuda Triangle because of strange anomalies that consistently take place in this area. Uh Aha. Yeah. The Zone of Silence is a place where compasses spin in circles in a way that defies logic. It's a place where strange lights have been seen dancing across the Mexican sky, but it gets even stranger. The first reported anomaly in the so-called zone of silence in Mexico took place in the 1930s. That's not to say that there weren't things happening there before that. Of course. This is the first documented uh, anomaly. A pilot named Francisco Sabaria was flying over the area, and just as he entered this particular zone, all of his instrumentation on his panel went crazy. Not just the compass, but all of the dials on his dashboard started spinning or fluctuating back and forth.
1: I imagine at that time in an airplane of that type, that's terrifying.
3: I would think so. In addition to that, all of his radio equipment stopped working. But once he left that airspace, everything returned to normal. This is an anomaly that has been repeated time and again. When people fly through this area, that happens. Flash forward to the 1970s, White Sands Missile Base in New Mexico. A U.S. missile was fired from the test site. Once it was airborne, it seemed to have a mind of its own. It crashed into the zone of silence. It appeared as though, this is what uh, they, they said by watching it on radar, it looked like it had been pulled into the airspace, and then into the ground. Oof. U.S. officials contacted the Mexican government and asked permission to investigate the crash, and specifically the site that it crashed in. Mexican government did permit this. What they discovered during this investigation has left a lot of unanswered questions. And it's fed the legend of the Zone of Silence. Silence. La Zona del Silencio. That's just fun to say. They discovered that no signals of any kind penetrate this area. (laughs) Penetrate. Which, by the way, is triangular shaped, interestingly enough. And not just radio signals, but even satellite signals. Essentially, it creates a dark zone that can't be penetrated by any type of uh, radio signal.
1: Why, though?
3: Experts say it's due to an excessively high magnetic field. Shortly after these discoveries were made, the Mexican government built a research facility in this area. Okay. But their official claim is that they're studying wildlife. (laughs) Encore. But most people who are aware of the goings-on in the Silent Zone think that uh, they're studying much more than that, than what they're admitting to. Sure. One of the things that has been verified is that one of the more unusual observable geologic properties is a high level of uh, magnetite and uranium deposits.
1: Oh, that's kind of like um, that show that you were watching that said...
3: Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, yeah. The,
1: that the ground itself had properties that were conductors or something like that.
3: I too saw the similarities between uh, between those these two stories. Interesting. Researchers say this could very well be the cause of an electromagnetic pulse or electromagnetic pulses that they've detected coming from this area Mm -hmm. and that it could be the source of the disrupted signals. So it could be a naturally occurring, albeit a very strange geologic anomaly. Now, even stranger than the missile being pulled into that zone, according to Atlas Obscura, Two meteorites have landed on the exact same spot, one in 1938 and one in 1954. What are the chances of that? I would say gabajillion to one, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Gabajillion. So there's the thought that these meteorites are emitting magnetic properties so that they were pulled down into the site by the unusual geology in the area. In fact, the whole area is littered with... Iron-rich objects, many of them from space. That's
1: fascinating.
3: However, over the decades, there have been many other strange sightings in the area. Unexplained lights in the sky over the zone of silence. But not just lights and alleged UFO sightings, but also alleged alien encounters. Local ranchers tell tales of the lights, but also odd strangers that have appeared from seemingly nowhere that claimed to be, quote, from above.
1: That could just be like Canada.
3: <laughs> Why do we think of north as up and south as down? Because it is. I know in Maine, people talk about, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm going up to camp.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter the location of camp either.
3: No, just going up to camp. Some locals believe that the area is a uh, portal for aliens. Again, very similar to what's going on at Skinwalker Ranch, allegedly. There's a story about three blonde strangers Having been encountered many times at many different uh, locations by multiple witnesses, there have been reports of animals, such as cattle, being mutilated as well as attacked by an unknown type of predator that they attribute to the chubacabra.
1: Well, I don't love that.
3: There have also been many reports by locals over the years of flying disc-like objects. On a couple of occasions, local ranchers have gone to the site that they thought they saw the UFO land, mm-hmm. or whatever it was, and discovered that the vegetation and the brush in that area had been scorched in a disc shape. Now, admittedly, there is no concrete evidence to support the claims of UFO activity. Sure. It's mostly stories and tales, uh, nothing physical mostly stories just passed down from a generation to the next by the local inhabitants. But whether you believe in UFOs or not, doesn't really matter. Something strange is going on in this area. Apparently, And it certainly appears that there is a strange magnetic pull and highly irregular and unusual electromagnetic activity there. Is that area, in fact, a giant natural magnet that pulls meteorites and missiles toward it? That by itself is extremely interesting and unusual and warrants further study. The problem is when anybody wanders in there to try to do some studies on this particular piece of land, None other research instruments work. They malfunction. They oh, shut down.
1: Right. That's, I mean, you said that that was a common thing that happened there. So it must be hard to conduct tests
3: yeah. when nothing's working. Batteries, freshly charged, will drain unexpectedly. It seems so far that it's an area that's impossible to gather data from. Certainly not by using any type of electronic equipment or equipment that is sensitive to excessively high magnetic and uh, electromagnetic energy. Sure. But the strangest thing for me is this, that involves, of course, the zone of silence. (laughs) If you take that world map and you place a ruler with the westernmost point at the zone of silence and follow that latitude straight across the map, you'll find that it's located just slightly north of the Tropic of Cancer and that not only does it intersect the zone of silence but it goes right through the middle of the Bermuda Triangle and then right through the middle of where the Pyramids of Giza are located.
1: Uh-huh. The
3: exact same latitude. Fascinating. My information came from Atlas Obscura, Ancient Origins website, and Discovery. You can draw your own conclusions there, but that's some pretty interesting stuff.
1: It absolutely is.
3: Oh, it was something else I was going to... Oh, yeah, aliens are real... <laughs>
2: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
3: This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca.
1: And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them.
3: at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer.
2: And now, that thing in the middle.
3: After the Titanic sank, it was learned that many lives could have been saved if more lifeboats had been on board. The Eastland passenger ship decided that would be the best course to take. On the morning of July 24th, 1915, the Eastland passenger ship doubled up on lifeboats. The extra weight capsized the ship, and 844 people died. A couple of episodes ago, I did uh, the topic about the Salier twins, the twins who married twins, and then they both had uh, baby boys at about the same time. And so genetically, even though they are cousins, genetically they're considered siblings as well. If you did a DNA test, you couldn't tell the difference. And you posted about that and Mandy commented, they're doing it wrong. Best course of action. Stay out of the spotlight. If I were one of these people, I'd make it so that only one family existed on paper and the other could switch out and take our place when we needed a, quote, mental health day, or to further the successes with their individual strength. Like Jet could stay home from school one day and watch cartoons while Jax went to school for him, and one woman could do a spa day while her sister went to work. How many people get this amazing opportunity to be in two places at once?
0: (laughs) The saliers are squandering their opportunities. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
2: If you're ever pulled over for speeding while listening to this podcast, just tell the officer about The Box of Oddities. He won't throw out the ticket, but we would love another subscriber. This is The Box of Oddities. All right, Lady Cakes, tell me a story.
1: J.R.R. Tolkien and... C.S. Lewis were like buds. Yeah. Which is bananas. They were good friends. Yeah. And it's said that they were hanging out one day and C.S. said, "Tollers, there is too little of what we really like in stories. I'm afraid we shall have to try and write some ourselves. <laughs> So legend has it that that day, they made a bet that they would try writing in a new genre. And they flipped a coin to see who would end up getting which genre. And it was determined that C.S. Lewis would write a space travel story, while Tolkien would have to do time travel. So Lewis, in his attempt, ended up writing not just a book, but a trilogy, out of the silent planet, Perilondra, and that hideous strength. Tolkien, on the other hand, uh, wrote that his effort, quote, ran dry, leaving Lewis the winner of their hefty bet, though I don't know exactly what was bet and if uh, Tolkien paid out. So today we're talking about things that we have as a society that are a result
3: of a bet. I love this idea.
1: If you grew up watching Cartoon Network in the early two thousands, you might remember Ed, Ed, and Eddie—the ridiculous schemes of the Eds, if you will.
3: I do recall that. You do. Was that uh, Was that Nickelodeon or? It was Cartoon Network. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yes, Um, it actually was originally meant for Nickelodeon, but um, Nickelodeon wanted a bigger say in the creative direction of the series, and so. Danny Antonucci ended up taking it to Cartoon Network. So Danny Antonucci created cartoons, yes, but they were cartoons for a more mature audience. They aired on different networks, more like MTV. Okay. And so when a friend said, I would love to see a children's show written by you, Danny Antonucci took it to heart and wrote Ed, Ed, and Eddie. It hit the airwaves in 1999 and almost instantly became a success. See, I never saw the show because in the early 2000s, I was working in a bar. And so that meant work or sleep or arguing with my boss about whether or not I should be fired because I pushed a guy down the stairs.
3: Oops, those things happen. <laughs> they happen. You're describing that situation. I pictured uh, Ruthie from Ozark.
1: It was something like that. Yeah. Did she's... you call
3: him a fucknut? nut? <laughs>
1: In 1954, John Hersey, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, wrote a piece for Life magazine called Why Do Students Bog Down on First R? A Local Committee Sheds Light on a National Problem. Reading which is a really long title for an article, I think. And maybe if he was such a good writer, he should have like, you know, trimmed that down.
3: Yeah. Brevity is the soul of wit.
1: (laughs) It was very extremely critical of school primers, you know, like Fun with Dick and Jane. Uh, Not exactly fun. And it didn't keep kids wanting to read. So William Spaulding, who was the director of an educational division for a publisher, challenged Dr. Seuss, to write a story that first graders couldn't put down. He had to be limited to 225 distinct words from a list of 348 words that (laughs) were selected from a standard first graders' vocabulary list. And the result of that was The Cat in the Hat.
3: No way. Yeah.
1: But interestingly, The Cat in the Hat was not the only Dr. Seuss book written on a bet. Bennett Serf, the co-founder of Random House, bet doc, bet Dr. Seuss that he couldn't use exactly fifty unique words for a book that was made in 1960. So Dr. Seuss wrote Green Eggs and Ham,
3: okay. which right. ended
1: up being his best-selling work. And allegedly, Serf never paid up. What a dick! I know.
3: He stiffed Dr. Seuss. It's bad form when you're stiffing Dr. Seuss.
1: Graham William Nash, you're familiar. Sir Graham Nash, an English singer, songwriter, and musician. He's known for contributions to the Hollies and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Well, anyway, Graham Nash was at home on Hawaii, and he was about to go on tour. So his friend was going to be driving him to the airport. And his friend said, well, we've got 15 minutes. I bet you can't write a song in that amount of time. (laughs) Which to me sounds like a way to try to keep your friend quiet while you're driving.
3: Sure. Don't talk to me.
1: I've had enough. Anyway, before they got to the airport, the lyrics to Just a Song Before I Go had been
3: penned. No kidding. Wow. Some
1: of the lyrics, by the way, driving me to the airport and to the friendly skies. So he was writing quite literally.
3: And flying united. (laughs) Apparently. Um... And that explains why that song's only a little more than two minutes long.
1: And you know this because that wasn't one that you chose to pee during?
3: No, when I was working in radio, yeah. <laughs> you'd always put on the long version of Freebird, especially if you'd had tacos recently or, or maybe some bad shrimp. In
1: 1820... James Fenimore Cooper was reading aloud to his wife from an English novel, but he found it pretty dull. And so he tossed it and said, I could write a better book than that myself. (laughs) So since he was unemployed after working as a sailor for the U.S. Navy, his wife was like, oh, yeah, well, why don't you? And so he did. He anonymously published Precaution, which received a pretty favorable notice in the U.S. and England. Um, And then the next year, he wrote his second novel, The Spy, which was inspired by an American tale related to him by his neighbor. And that became a huge success in the States and at home, requiring several reprintings to satisfy demand. So it was his wife going, oh, you think so? (laughs)
2: Let's
1: see it. That uh, that ended up uh, creating the author that is James Fenimore Cooper.
3: That's an incredible story. Also, I love it when people use three names.
1: Me too. Fenimore is his mother's maiden name. And I just love it when when we get names from that usage, like I'm going to honor my mother's family as well. And Fenimore is just a cool name. The Mysterious Affair at Styles. So, Agatha Christie, um, she and her sister were chatting, and her sister said, "I bet that you can't write a novel in which the reader will be unable to spot the murderer, despite having all the same clues given to them as the detective in the book." So, Agatha Christie got to penning, and she wrote The Mysterious Affair at Styles. She began the novel when she was volunteering at a hospital dispensary during World War I, and that was her first book. So big thanks to Madge for giving us Agatha Christie.
3: <laughs> also, I loved the uh, most recent version of Death on the Nile.
1: Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun. So
3: beautiful. Beautifully shot.
1: John Forbes Nash Jr. was an American mathematician who made huge contributions to game theory, differential geometry, and the study of partial differential equations.
3: He's the um, beautiful mind guy. Yes,
1: the inspiration for A Beautiful Mind. Um, So if you've seen the movie, you probably know that uh, he wasn't always easy to work with. (laughs) Uh, But most of his colleagues at MIT figured out how to make it work, because obviously you want to keep working with John Nash. But uh, so you just kind of figure it out, right? But one of his fellow professors, Warren Ambrose, was not someone who figured it out. They clashed constantly. And so at one point, Ambrose told Nash, if he's so good at math, why doesn't he go ahead and solve this particularly challenging math problem? This math problem that no one had been able to solve, right? Mm-hmm. So Nash went ahead and did that.
3: Is, that. is that when he wrote it all on the windows inside the library?
1: I don't, I don't know if that was a direct.
3: Maybe it was artistic uh, license on the part of the
2: filmmaker. It may
1: have been unclear. Nash continued to build upon that work in the mid-1950s to the point where he became a contender for the Fields Medal, Jeez. not once, but twice. Okay. So that was a, just a little mockery that led to huge leaps in mathematics.
3: Incredible. What a fascinating story his life was.
1: Yeah, we should watch A Beautiful yeah. Mind. It's been probably 20 years yeah. since I saw it. Me
3: too. It. I think I saw it two or three times right about the time it came out, and that was it.
1: I got most of my information from Today I Found Out, from Grunge, Electric Lit, and the Cool 101.7 blog.
3: That's Cool 101.7. Yeah. Where where are they? I don't know. It's a radio station, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. Duluth, Minnesota.
3: (laughs) Shout out to Duluth.
1: Woot, woot! Anyway, there you go. There's things that we have that we wouldn't have had if it weren't for bets.
3: want to thank our most recent patrons, Jacqueline, carrie Ann, Carrie, Rachel, and Alicia- they are now members of the Order of Freaks. If you want to support us and enjoy my boob art, it's true. <laughs> she has created an entire art series based on her mammogram results. <laughs> Go to theboxofoddities.com, click on the support this podcast link, or just, you know, hunt us up on Patreon.
1: Thanks so much.
2: We'll see you next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance we ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The com. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here.
0: And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is well, I mean it's about
3: everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?